Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. A recent study showed that even at the most elite level, as many as 25% of relay teams failed to pass the baton from one runner to the next. How can we as a church make sure we pass the baton successfully from one generation to the next? Bart Garrett, lead pastor of Christ Church in Berkeley, California, brings us this message entitled, Blessing the Next Generation with the Blessings of Limitation and Anticipation, which covers Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 21. Thank you for joining us today. It's our privilege now to have uh, Bart Garrett back with us. If you've uh, come to the church over the last years, you wouldn't know Bart, but if you've been here for a a while, Bart was our director of our young adults from 2001 through 2005. Uh, I met Bart when he was in college, good friend of my oldest son. And when I met Bart, I looked at him and I said, God's got his hand on this guy. God's going to use him. And as I got to know him better, I told him one time, I said, if God calls you into the ministry, you call me because I've got a place for you at our church. I want to invite you to be a part of it. And years later, he called me and he said, I'm a coming. And so we had the privilege of having him here. Then he went out to Berkeley to launch a church there with Katie and now three children. And um, they're about to launch their third location uh, this next year. And so multiplying well, reproducing, and uh, God's using them in a great way. Uh, We're just blessed and thrilled, Bart, to have you back with us. And we're always glad to see you. So come back and uh, lead us now. I'll pray for you. Let me ask, and then God will use you. Father in heaven, thank you for Bart. Use him. I pray that his message would grip our hearts. Thank you for the message he brings to us now on this day about this next generation as we seek to bless it. Uh, Teach us how, even through Bart now. Bless him, his family, and his church as he's away. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Bart. Amen. Thanks, Randy. Well, good morning to each of you. Here we are together again, all of us that had our Labor Day vacation plans thwarted. So we're in church. Uh, I say here we are together again because when I was here, I was the young guy on the teaching team. So Randy would always stick me with all the holiday weekends. So I think I preached every Groundhog Day and Labor Day. And, but notice I'm here and not at my church because I stuck our young guy with uh, the vacation weekend. Uh, you know, the last time I preached at Perimeter was August of 2004. And I remember it well because Randy was in China that weekend. Uh, Hurricane Charlie was bearing down on Florida's coastline. And I got a call on Friday night. Steve Brown, most of you will remember, was to preach here. Uh, He wasn't grounded in Florida, but he was needed in Florida to stand on the shoreline and say, Storm, go back from whence you came. So I got the bullpen call, we need you to fill in. And so I got up here three times, Saturday night, two on Sunday. And each time I got up, there was this collective groan. Oh, people streamed to the exits. (laughs) Objects were hurled on stage. Obscenities were shouted. Well, actually they weren't because Steve Brown wasn't here and he's the only one who shouts obscenities (laughs) in church. But here I was, um, you know, Danny Werfel was here a couple of weeks ago. I know some of you dads tapped your sons on the shoulder and said, you know, he won a Heisman Trophy. And my only hope today is that a couple of you dads will tap your sons on the shoulder and say, you know, he pinch hit 
for Steve Brown. <laughs> so I am here today to collect my compensation for seven years of therapy. And during that horrific weekend, and I would cry to my therapist, how can I imagine them in their underwear when I was the one standing up here not wearing any clothes, you know? No, I'm not here for that at all. I'm actually back to say, bless you, bless you, bless you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, As Randy mentioned, this was my... My first gig, uh, my family who couldn't be here, they just started school this week. I really wanted them to be here. I've got a picture of them, but we got started here. Our marriage took root here. Um, my oldest, Caroline, uh, was three weeks old when we moved here to start at Perimeter. She's 11 years old now in middle school. Uh, I got my first experience here as a young minister. The first time I baptized someone, I baptized 27 people in one weekend. So what more could I ask for. Uh, I got to follow a leader who is everything that the world says he is, a visionary leader, an evangelist, a disciple maker, but more significantly, a loving husband, a faithful, devoted father, uh, someone in ministry who has been the example of a long obedience in the same direction in a vocation where ministers fall flat on their faces every day. I got to learn from a church, from you, what it's like to be evangelistic and to care about social justice and to be missional. And what you've shown me is that you even care so much as to steward your resources that way. When I uh, was raising funds to go and start this work in Berkeley, uh, people from all over the South would give me $100 or $200 or even $1,000, but people here were giving $10,000 and $20,000 and $30,000. Why? Because of the socioeconomic demography? Perhaps. But because you care about mission. So let me simply say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It is an honor and a privilege to be back here. Uh, You know, um, I was given the task to speak to blessing the next generation. And I'm in Berkeley, California, and some people would say uh, that is the next generation. Some people say it's the last generation. Um, But, you know, we have people in our church from Pixar and Google and Facebook, and they're very, very influential people. But what I love most about Berkeley is Berkeley is perhaps the only place in America where you can be sitting in a coffee shop enjoying your uh, fair trade, organic, shade-grown, free-range, grass-fed cup of coffee— And you're sitting there enjoying that coffee and someone walks by, a passerby outside the window uh, wearing nothing but a pink tutu. And someone else walks by carrying nothing but a Bible. And the guy sitting next to you turns to you and he says, was he carrying a Bible? (laughs) That's what I love about Berkeley. But what are we talking about when we ask the question, how do we bless the next generation? Are we talking national? Are we talking local? Are we talking individuals or institutions or corporations or churches or uh, the businesses we work for or the cul-de-sacs where we live? Who are we talking about? Am I, as a 30-year-old person, um, the next generation? Am I the last generation? 
Are we talking about teens or tweeners or twixters or X's or Y's or Z's or centennials or millennials or boomers or busters or harvesters or gatherers or Quakers or shakers? Not shakers because they don't have an X generation because they didn't believe in sex, but that's another sermon. (laughs) Who are we talking about? This is a complex question. I think we're actually talking about all of those places and all of those people. And I will be woefully inadequate in half an hour to address it. But I do want to pull from my favorite book of the Bible. And one of my favorite passages that I think emanates the deepest truths of the cosmos. And I think these three movements, these truths are crucial and essential as we think about blessing the next generation. And it's uh, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi from Philippians chapter 3. Paul writes, Whatever was to my profit... I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection in the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, Forgetting what is behind and striving toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take a view of such things. And if on some point you think differently, that too, God will make clear of you, clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have told you before and now say again, even in tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, when you hear this sound, it's very grating, isn't it? Um, It's irksome and bothersome to us, but if you're a relay runner, to hear that sound is to hear every waking moment of years of your life washed away in one second. Why is this such a hard thing to do, to pass the baton? In 2004, we bobbled the exchange in the Olympics. In 2008 at Beijing, we dropped the baton and were disqualified. Uh, Just before 2012, the New York Times uh, wrote an article talking about the difficulty of making this exchange. And it cited two reasons. The first thing it said was the technique involved is quite complex. The runner has to run a certain way and have the baton in the left hand and be on the outside of the lane. They have 20 meters to make the pass. But more significantly, this article said, making the exchange is difficult because it involves community. 
cohesion, cooperation. It involves rugged, pioneering individuals who spend all of their time and their agendas and their money working with trainers so they can compete to win gold in their sport coming together. Allison Felix said, anything can happen with this exchange because we're selfish people. So, as we think about these three deepest truths which I'll touch on for a few minutes. Let this question rattle around in your brain for a second. Why is it so difficult to make this exchange, to pass the baton to the next generation? And let this quote settle deeply into your heart. Reinhold Niebuhr, one of the greatest theologians in the last century with his brother Richard, said this, anything worth doing can't be done in one generation. Anything worth doing can't be done in one generation. So I don't have a lot of time to talk about technique, but I will talk about uh, three of the deepest truths of the cosmos that Paul addresses here in this passage that will help us make this exchange a good one. It's the blessing of obsession, the blessing of limitation, and the blessing of anticipation. If you're a theologian following along at home, what I'm talking about is incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. And Paul addresses all of these things in this passage. He starts with obsession. What's yours? What are you fixated on? What are you fascinated with? Where do you put all of your energies and time and resources and passions? You asked me last night, I would say that Alabama will win another national championship, right? Those are easy, good obsessions that you can pick at quite easily. But it's hard to get at the root of that. that. I'm not a counselor, but I do a lot of pastoral counseling, and I have a very simple theory. We all sit on three-legged stools, and one of those legs is anger, and one of those legs is guilt, and one of those legs is fear. And when I'm talking to you, and when I'm talking honestly with myself, I want to say, what are you so angry about? What is that deepest, darkest place in your heart that you'll never go to because you feel so guilty? What are you so afraid to lose? How you answer those questions will begin to reveal your obsession. Paul reveals his by doing a comparison and contrast. He says in 7 and 8, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to having a life that is safe and good and predictable. Having kids that are smart and secure. Making enough money so I can travel or retire early. That's not at all what Paul says. He says that as compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And that word is an intimate knowledge. It's not knowing about something. It's knowing someone. It's how the best marriages work when one spouse can complete the sentences of the other. That's what Paul is longing for, to be obsessed with this relationship. How does Paul do it? Well, Paul's a pretty smart guy. He knows that it's not the bad stuff that will keep him from Jesus, but it's the good stuff. You know, if you own a company, you're often obsessed with maximizing profit and mitigating loss. And here Paul is in this uh, passage saying, everything that is good, I'm calling bad. Everything that is profit, I'm calling loss. What is Paul doing? See, he knows in our debt, in our failure, 
we run to Jesus. We say, heal me, forgive me, I need you. But in our profit, in our success, in our good, we saunter away. Our sin becomes the first sin of the garden. I don't need you. I'm doing okay all by myself. Paul is obsessed with this relationship with Jesus. Now that would be an important message to remind the next generation that good is the enemy of the best. You need to be obsessed with Jesus. Well, that's sort of accusational, isn't it? See, Paul recognizes something and it's all over all of his letters and you get a glimpse of it here. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says this, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What is the that? It's the relationship. It's the joy of the incarnation that God loved you, but he lost you. That he wants to take hold of this relationship. That he is obsessed with you. That God has an obsessive compulsive disorder or ordering of the entire cosmos with you in mind. That Paul got flipped off of his horse on the way to Damascus. Why? Not because he was obsessed with God, but because God was obsessed with him. That's a truth the next generation needs to first hear. My youngest daughter of three started kindergarten this week, and I've done this three times now. And you go, and um, everyone's nervous. The parents are more nervous than the kids. And all of a sudden, the teacher comes out and says, line up. And your little five-year-olds get in this line. And they start moving towards their classroom. And I look at that line just like I did with my two older daughters. And I thought, you know, for the rest of my daughter's life, she's going to be lining up. She's going to be getting in line. And she may look ahead of her at line with eyes of envy and jealousy and and say, why can't I be up there? Or she may turn around and look behind her in line with eyes of contempt and disdain. Say, don't you wish you were here? Because she's like me. And I know at the root of that contempt and disdain or envy and jealousy is comparison and contrast and competition. I told this story once at Perimeter, but uh, my eldest daughter, Caroline, who's 11 now in middle school, when she was four years old in here, it was Halloween just up the road, and she wanted to be Snow White, and we had this delightful evening of trick-or-treating, and we come home, and we're sitting at the stoop passing out candy, and another Snow White comes up. And I watched my daughter look at her like someone would at the senior prom when someone else has their prom dress on. And she looked at her from head to toe and then this other Snow White, White sauntered away and she turned to me and she said, you know, she had a Snow White dress on too. I said, you're right, Caroline, she did. She said, you know, she had red slippers on too. I said, you know, Caroline, you're right, she did. You know, she was holding a wand just like I was too. You're right, Caroline, she did. But you know, she had a red bow and I had a crown. <laughs> yes, Caroline. You're right. See, at the root of our envy and contempt and jealousy and disdain is competition and comparison and contrast. But at the root of that is our desire to belong 
to be loved. In the next generation, in their teens and 20s and 30s, 50% of them come from broken homes and 25% of them have some sort of abuse in their past. And 99% of them will not have the economic safety and security that their parents and grandparents had in America. And wouldn't a great gift be to start with the beginning of the story and to say to them, God is obsessed with you so much so that he reordered the entire cosmos to come close to you. He loved you, but he lost you. So he invaded time and space to be near you. It's a tremendous gift we can give the next generation. What about the second gift, the gift of limitation? Well, let's go back to the garden for just a second. Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day, utterly naked one before the other, no shame, everything they ever wanted in life, except one thing. They didn't want to be like God. They wanted to become gods. And how did they want to become gods? They wanted to be unlimited, not hindered, unencumbered. They wanted what theologians would call the non-communicable or incommunicable attributes of God. The three omnis, right? Omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. They wanted to say, I can do anything. I've got the power. They wanted to say, I can know everything. I've got the knowledge. They wanted to say, I can be anywhere. I've got the presence. Has much changed today in an experiential age where we can do anything? In a technological age? In an information age where we can know everything, we can be everywhere? We can work anywhere at any time. So we work everywhere all the time. You saw it this morning. You opened your iPhone. You opened your iPad. You saw the forbidden fruit with the bite taken out, still alive and well, right? You checked Facebook. I'm not saying technology is bad, but this notion of being completely unencumbered and unlimited is bad. Because the result of Adam's and Eve's desire to be God is what? Death. We have a crisis of finitude. We have an expiration date. We have a little dash between the moment we're born and the moment we will die. What a strain. We work against this, Christian or non-Christian, with every fiber of our being, fighting death, wanting to cheat death, wanting to attain any and everything all the time, everywhere. Wouldn't it be a gift if we could say, whatever is profit I consider lost for the sake of Christ? That I want to participate in the crucifixion is what Paul says. That Jesus himself would be limited by death. Um, You know what? This is seemingly bad news, but it's really good news to the next generation. Notice what Paul says. Many live as enemies to the cross of Christ. In Berkeley, a lot of people say Christianity is the problem, not the solution. So I say, you know, you're an enemy to the cross of Christ. And they say, absolutely. (laughs) I think it's ridiculous. But then Paul goes on and says, but, you know, these people who live as enemies of the cross of Christ, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And I watch this next generation in my congregation devoured by what they devour, consumed by what they're consuming, possessed 
by what they're seeking to possess, chased after by what they're chasing after. And I say to them in the right moment, wouldn't it be great to admit your limitation? To quit hiding and to simply say, you know what? I'm not the me I want to be. You know what? The ground is my limit. I'm going to die and I'm scared to death of it. You know what? Everything that I thought would give me unhindered, unencumbered freedom is a shackle on my ankle. There's a guy in my church, Julian. He's a biochemist. He uh, was just baptized this summer. I'm going to share a small portion of his story. He was baptized with another guy who was a Buddhist monk who was the chef and then chief food consultant for Chipotle who wrecked his life, got thrown in jail, came to faith. We baptized him in July. And Julian, here's the contrast, is this biochemist from Canada. And this is what he writes. He says, The first time I came to Christ Church, I heard the song Satisfied that starts like this. All my life long, I had panted for a drink from some cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. I was born in Quebec, Canada, in a society that at the time of my birth was collectively rejecting organized religion. People were tired of an oppressive and invasive institution, but threw away at the same time faith and spirituality. I grew up learning how to lean on me and myself only. I must admit that this gave me success. Really? In this overwhelming culture of the self, one learns self-esteem, self-determination, self-help, self-control, being a self-made man, self-confidence, self-knowledge, self-righteousness. But no one tells you how to deal with addiction. The feeling of being lost, brokenness. I lived like that for several long years. Yes, I had great family and friends around me, but nothing could quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Something was terribly missing. Something that I thought didn't exist. I was an atheist. I'm a biochemist, and my job is to be curious and ask myself questions about life on the molecular scale. A few years ago, I started asking questions in a much bigger scale, questions about the existence of God. I first became agnostic. Maybe there's a God, but we won't ever know. Then my observations of the beauty of life brought me to strongly believe that there is a God. Before moving to the United States, I started listening to sermons on the internet. Then when I moved here, a friend brought me to this church. I started coming regularly and started praying. Now God, through his love and forgiveness, provides me with purpose, strength, hope, and healing. Today I'm coming back to God. Today, through my baptism, I seal my covenant. Today, I join the course of the song satisfied. Hallelujah. He has found me. The one my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies all my longings. Through his blood, I now am saved. You know, if we can pass along the gifts of obsession but limitation to the next generation then we're going to foster and cultivate a certain humility which is only confident in Christ. You know, um, my five-year-old was dropped off at my parents' house in Alabama to spend a week there, and uh, we were getting to go on vacation, which was heaven come to earth. And she was a wreck all morning and just really just annoying as anything to be around. And finally, my wife said this right in front of my mom, and they had a fine relationship, so this was no big deal. But she said, you know, Cammie, the problem is you want to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. And Cammie looked at her and said, that's exactly right. (laughs) 
It was like it all clicked and made sense. Like, this is my angst. I want to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. Thank you for telling me what it was that was bothering me so much. And that's something I love about worshiping at Perimeter. I get to worship the Holy Trinity when I come back. Me, myself, and I. (laughs) Just like I like it. But I'm having a midlife crisis now. I'm the perfect person to sit in the middle of these generations and to turn to one and say, you know, if you're so confident that God is obsessed with you, then you'll be able to recognize that you're limited and you don't need to try to do everything and you can just take a break and relax and be okay when you don't hit the ceiling of your potential. Maybe part of being here is simply saying to some of you in the next generation, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me for being a know-it-all 25-year-old? I didn't know I had limits. I didn't know God was obsessed with me. I needed to find identity and security and acceptance and approval and all sorts of things. Forgive me. Or if you're passing off the baton, I don't need to be threatened by youth and zeal and passion. I'm confident in Jesus. I understand he's obsessed with me. It's okay to know my limitation. I think the final gift we give the next generation, and Paul never stops at the crucifixion, is the gift of anticipation. It's the gift of resurrection. Uh, Just to keep you alive for our last few moments together, I want to do a quiz, and it works so well when you shout things out. Okay, so shout it out. They're one-word answers. It's okay to do this in church. No big deal. Just fill in these blanks. A tree that grows from an acorn is called an... A vapor that rises from a fire is called... The sound a frog makes is called... The white of an egg is called its... See how powerful conditioning is? And you as an American Christian who lived through the 20th century have been conditioned your whole life to think that heaven is some pie in the sky and a sweet by and by way out there thing that I can't wait to go towards. So I'm going to show off my halo and strum my harp and sprout some wings and sing for all eternity. Which sounds a lot like the other place. That's not what heaven is. Paul says that we fellowship in his sufferings and identify with the crucifixion so that we may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul says we're citizens of heaven. And we're colonizing earth with heaven. And we pray Jesus' prayer. His Magna Carta of freedom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean for you? If you're a Christian, it means you have a place to go with your suffering. Yesterday, I spent time with two congregants, perimeter, struggling through cancer, which is cheating and lying and stealing from their family. 
this summer, I left a family reunion to fly back to my church to do a funeral for a 57 and 59-year-old who died in a private plane crash and whose three children and their grandchildren go to our church. The past two weeks, I've gone to the NICU six times to be with a young family in our church whose son has a dilated and large heart. What do you say in moments like that? Here's the consolation prize. Life is hard. It really stinks. But one day you're going to have wings and fly away. No, you don't say that. What you say is Jesus is walking and working backwards on death. He is trouncing on it. Why? Through the resurrection. If there was no resurrection, then Jesus was just one of the hundreds of failed messiahs that was skewered on a cross. But if there's resurrection, then the tomb is empty. And that means Jesus can go to the tomb of his friend Lazarus and he can cry with Mary and Martha. And he can snort and bellow and shout at the unnatural death. And he can say, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Paul says, we what? Eagerly await a savior from there who is Christ our Lord. The resurrection teaches me in my suffering that Jesus is on my side of the line. It doesn't tell me why I suffer. There's a lot of suffering we may never figure out. But it does tell me why it is not that I suffer. It's not because God doesn't care. It's not because God doesn't promise and bring hope. When Paul says he fellowships in the suffering of Jesus, we all know that that means persecution too. And we have it. Ethical business practice, evangelizing with a coworker at work, giving sacrificially. There's ways that we experience persecution. But I think what Paul is also saying is identifying and fellowshipping with the suffering of Jesus, identifying with his death, is not leaving the conversation. Is an obedience to Christ that doesn't stop talking to Jesus, even when pleading with him, take this cup away from me. That's the moment of identification. The very prayer Jesus prayed. But lastly, the gift of anticipation is not just for the church and its Christians. It's for our world. You know, in Berkeley, um, there's all sorts of PhDs in our church. It's, it's highly intimidating talking to people. Like my brain is often working like two minutes slower than they're talking. And I'm trying to process what they're saying. But in seven years of being there, uh, I can generalize and say there's really two groups of people in Berkeley. There are the optimists that say the future is, is ours. You know, we can excel medically and economically and politically and scientifically. Everything's going to be great because tomorrow will be better than today. And there are the pessimists that say, you know, we're heading for a cosmic crunch, collapse, or cool down. And Will Smith or Tommy Lee Jones or Bruce Willis or someone may deliver us at the end, but probably not. <laughs> and I love the words of Leslie Newbegin. The great missiologist who spent his life ministering in India, he said, I am not an optimist and I am not a pessimist. Christ has risen from the dead and this changes 
everything. So the gift, uh, the blessing of anticipation that we give to the next generation is to go to the optimist and to simply say to them, you know, this world is still not as it should be. That Capitol Hill is not going to bring you salvation. That a cure of cancer is not going to bring you salvation. But Christ has risen from the dead and this changes everything. But it's also going to the pessimist and saying, this is a broken place and I know you know that. But if Christ has risen from the dead, do you know, even in the brokenness, nothing gets wasted. Everything you could do in the name of Christ, the kind word, the casual smile, the brief you file, the patient you see, the software you design, the neighbor you talk with about the gospel, everything you do in the name of Christ because of the power of the resurrection will not be wasted. A final thought here. Um, Paul is speaking to citizens of Rome who are colonizing Philippi. So when Paul is saying you're citizens of heaven, he's saying to these citizens of Rome, don't just go to Rome. Do you think the Holy Roman Emperor wants you back with all the unemployment, with the lack of food and resources? No, stay here. Be colonizers of a new community. Be heaven on earth. I leave with an esoteric, though extremely practical thought, and then I'll pray for us. One of the great gifts that we give through anticipation, the resurrection of Christ, is re-embodiment. That's the esoteric thought. We are a disembodied culture. And if you don't believe me, look around at all of our singles that are sleeping around with anyone and everyone all the time. If you don't believe me, look at all of our marriages that are breaking. Why? Because it's just a physical thing. It doesn't really matter. It's not spiritual. It's just an exchange. But if we believe in the resurrection then we believe of a re-embodiment. What Jesus is saying to the next generation, what he's saying to you, is on earth, there may be beautiful bodies with ugly souls, or there may be ugly bodies with beautiful souls. But when heaven comes to earth, there will be beautiful bodies with beautiful souls. That's the hope we deliver. I'd invite you as you're able to pray with me. God, for those who are addicted in our room today in our midst, would you remind them that you're obsessed with them, that you're fixated upon them, that you call us the apple of your eye? And would that grant us the security and confidence and identity to get the help we need to be free of our bondage and our shackles. God, for those who feel tired and weary, as Ryan was saying earlier, and heavy laden because we live as if we are 
unencumbered and unlimited. Would you remind us, Jesus, that you limited yourself to life and death here? That we can't do everything. And finally, for those of us who are suffering through cancer and the NICU and losing loved ones, suffering with feeling like what we once thought was a beautiful world is really terribly broken. Jesus, would we hear your words today? I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? We ask these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the media resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.